The Deal with Yield is a podcast series covering the issues that matter most in crop production. Tune in to episodes on iTunes, My Farm Radio, and the Growing Knowledge blog on AnswerPlot.com. It's time again for the Deal with Yield podcast. As usual, joining us is Joel Whipperfirth, Winfield Ag Technology Application Lead and Winfield Master Agronomy Advisor, Kyle Reiner. On this episode, we'll be discussing how to combat corn diseases and pests and the importance of knocking out volunteer corn. Now, it's hard to believe we're already talking about harvest. So tell me, Joel, are there any common diseases that farmers should look for in the fall? As you look at the corn diseases that have come out, we talked a little bit about maybe northern corn leaf blight. Anthracnose is a big one. And certainly the timing at which your nitrogen in your plant starts to crash out, that nitrogen provides a natural sugar barrier in the stalk that the soil diseases that are, I would say, inoculous, or they're always living, they're always present in the soil. Those inoculant soil diseases can start to attack that stalk certainly anthracnose, uh, northern green leaf blight. Putting on a fungicide helps keep that plant health intact. But one of the things I've been seeing a lot of with the tropical weather conditions that we've gotten in southern Minnesota in, in certain years is gosses wilt. Kyle, what have you seen for gosses wilt in your part of the state? For gosses itself, usually we'll see it is kind of goes back to our cover crop story. If we get a lot of sediment moving around in the spring, and it opens up a spot on the plant, a vector allows the inoculum of gosses to come in, strong southern winds or wherever direction they're coming from, that infection happens early and then it usually shows up later. We're not like in Nebraska or Colorado where it affects it real, real early in life. It's usually a little bit later. It does pull yield down and most of the time where I see gosses has been corn and corn for a while. It came up here, it's in certain geographies. We have, we can control it a little bit with some different varieties. It's not really a big deal. What do you guys see over here? One of the things is it stays moist over here. We've seen this bacterial infection come across about four years ago. It was probably a lot worse. I think a couple of things have helped us hedge our bets on it a little bit. Uh, number one, we very rapidly put genetics into the market that had a better tolerance for goss as well. And that's a great tribute to the plant breeders and their speed at which they can bring things to market was they, they started to get gosses tolerance in. Gosses was found all the way back in 1969 at the uh, University of Nebraska, and it was so named for the, the dean at the university at the time. Uh, so I can't imagine what his graduate students thought of him for naming a bacterial flesh-eating corn disease after him. But that Nebraska's Michiganus, the, the Gosses disease, way back in 1969, they kind of found out that there was maybe two varieties, a variety A and B. And just like our DNA technology has gotten better as time has gone on, we actually have found that there's maybe as many as 15 subspecies of gosses out there. And so gosses continues to evolve. Fungicides don't do anything on gosses. They're not fungal pathogens. They're bacterial pathogens. As I see the climate get more arid, I see less gosses wilt. But we see a lot of gosses wilt corn on corn. We see less corn on beans. And we see less as we get less injury in the spring. So I'm hoping that we don't start to see it. I think the hybrid evolution has helped get it some plant health against gosses back in. So the thing to think about, you can send them to, to the universities and get them tested and get them confirmed if they're gosses or not. The thing is, is 
if you go from a gosses field and you touch something and you don't clean your hands and then you touch other material, you'll have gosses present on your fingers to somewhat throw off your test, right? And there's always some presence of it floating around in the air, too. So it's just other things you need to think about when you're sending tests on. There's a tomato test, Joel, which you're familiar about, that you can run through the same type of test as what they run for tomatoes, right, Joel? Yeah, so it doesn't test specifically for the subspecies. It tests for the overall. Some of the challenges, it's a quick field test, and I guess I kind of use it like this. I try to identify it visually first, and some of the visual symptoms are, I think it looks like fly crap sitting on a fence post. It's kind of black and speckly, and if you take your thumb and you can't wipe that fly black specks off of that plant, that's typically an indication that it's bacterial. If the gosses wilt is really active, and it's kind of in the morning hours, you can see that ooze from the cells just kind of letting loose around the edges of where it is. But that test, I kind of use it as a backup to validate. It's a quick field test that goes really quick, grind it up, put it in there, but it's not 100% certain. And I always go to, if there's visual symptoms and the test says that, it walks like a duck and talks like a duck, it's probably a duck. So Kyle, once in a while as I'm driving across Minnesota on Highway 14, I see these rogue corn plants popping up in soybean fields. Do you not recommend that growers spray corn in your part of the woods? Look, it's it's a bad pest and people overlook it. The best thing to do is go out there with your producers that are in your area and dig them up. And then by digging them up and then you bring out this nice white shiny bucket and you fill that with water and you just watch the larva of corn rootworms float up and... It's something that you don't even have to say a word. When you see that many insects come floating up, and people overlook that. Just a simple corn plant from the following year, they just multiply, and they stay in that root system, they feed on it. And why do you think they feed on that, Joel? I just thought it was maybe like a Motel 6. It was a great place for corn rootworms to hang out, and they probably get a free breakfast. So the light isn't always on, Joel. (laughs) And when we start looking at the trade expression, do you think the trade expression from the very first year is the same as the row corn from the next year and the year after? Or what do you think it is, Joel? Kyle, on volunteer corn and soybeans, I think one of the important factors as you look at that trait expression, and this is actually where Nielsen at Purdue suggested that corn rootworm resistance to the traits, and in particular the yield guard trait or the VT3 trait came from, it, it might have actually come from volunteer corn and soybeans. Can you help me understand why Nielsen was thinking that way? So the proteins are not expressed the year after as high as rate as what they are initially. And so people got to understand that it's not just we want to spend a whole bunch of extra money on spraying their volunteer corn that they don't think it's a big deal. It's it's a big deal. Right. So I think as you look at the volunteer corn problem, it's always bet on the pest. Well, if the bug is out there eating at a sub-lethal dose, one of the things we've seen is they've maybe taken a bite of the root and they haven't quite died and what emerges out of that is this natural selection process where they go out and mate with another bug that bit on the root and didn't quite die and out of that they have offspring that become resistant to the trait. So I think there's a couple pieces out there. Knock your volunteer corn out of your soybean field. So Kyle, in western Minnesota, what brand of corn rootworm beetles do you see the most? You know, in the past we've always seen northerns. And northerns tend to lay their eggs in the top eight inches. And now, with the last few years, I want to say the last five years, Joel, is it seems like there's a big 
influx of westerns in our area. And so they do the most damage. They're a little bit bigger creature. And they seem like they do a little more advanced chewing, and they just cause a lot more damage in our area. What do you see over in the east? Last year, I hung out some sticky traps. And when I say I hung the sticky traps, I really mean my intern hung the sticky traps. And we were counting a lot of westerns, in particular on corn on cornfields. When we got into corn on soybean fields, we were counting a lot of northerns. And one of the things I was reading on the westerns is that they tend to lay their eggs almost four feet into the soil. And so as you think about the temperature gradient in the soil warming up from the surface down lower, deeper, there begins to be this uneven distribution of egg hatch. And think about that. The proteins that are expressed in your corn plant kind of come on really early if it's the VT3 trait. And we call that protein titer, T-I-D-E-R. And that protein titer is the expression of that trait that kills that bug. If the protein is being expressed early and the rootworms are deeper in the soil, they might get a sublethal dose as they're coming on into a portion when the plant is producing less of that. So one technology we've really adapted to a lot in southern Minnesota, southeast in particular, is the SmartStacks technology, where we're using both the yield guard and the Herculex traits, and the Herculex tended to express itself later. And so we're getting that optimal expression of traits all season long, and that's one of the things I think has helped us combat western corn rootworm pressure here. Kyle, what do you see for insecticide use on top of traits? We've done a little bit, probably not as extensive as what you guys do, but we're getting a pretty good bump in insecticide over traits in our area. And that's not advised by some people in this world, but, look, we're trying to protect and do the best job we can on these traits. We're paying a lot of money for them, and we really don't have a lot of other options other than rotation with some of these. So we got to protect what we have. And, and the insects, insecticide is over traits. On fold fields, it's been zero without the presence of insects, and it's been up to 15 bushel. So our answer plot data last year, when we had sites that had high rootworm pressure, we were averaging 6.8 bushels on top of the traded corn by using an insecticide on there. And I, I think that really speaks to how the combinations of the technologies work. Traits are bite-to-die technology. You have to ingest that protein as a rootworm larvae in order for them to die. So they're still feeding. Well, the best way I've ever heard that described is if you ever watch the zombie massacre movies. If you have one zombie, you can probably get them. You'll be okay. If you have a 1,000 zombies, you're going to be in trouble, and that's the rootworms. If you have a 1,000 rootworms and each female lays about 800 eggs, you're going to be in trouble based on how much pressure you've got. So that's kind of the stair step that I use over here in the eastern part of the state is if you have high, high pressure, you probably should use a trait plus an insecticide and then back down the further you move from that high pressure. I think the big thing, too, is when I'm walking these fields, they're all emerging at a different time. There's certain pressures that come up, and it seems like they come up in fluxes. The westerns themselves, the males come up before the females. And so if you're doing an insecticide spraying over the top, you got to realize that you're not getting them all. And so that the males come up first and then the females come out later. So, Kyle, I went on a date last Friday with my wife, and it seems to me I was ready a good 45 minutes earlier. Does that transcend any other species? <laughs> I don't know, Joel. <laughs> Let me come up with this stuff. <laughs> You're listening to The Deal with Yield with Joel Whipperfirth, Winfield Ag Technology Application Lead and Winfield Master Agronomy Advisor, Kyle Reiner. 
For more episodes of The Deal with Yield, visit iTunes, My Farm Radio, and the Growing Knowledge blog on AnswerPlot.com.